Hello, you're listening to Drawn to the Flame, a sometimes fortnightly, sometimes monthly podcast for fans of Arkham Horror, the card game. I'm your host, Frank, and today I'm joined by... It's me, Peter. Hello, Frank. Hello, Peter. How are you? Uh, Very well. I'm doing very well indeed. How about yourself? Yeah, I'm good. I've uh, picked up a few mosquito bites from my jungle sojourn, but otherwise I'm fine. Not malaria-stricken, hopefully. Is the southern the jungles of southern Mexico a malaria place? Maybe it is. I yeah, know. I don't I just, think I'm malaria stricken. Sure, it is. I think anywhere that's got mosquitoes has it, doesn't it? Really? I don't know. Italy has mosquitoes. It doesn't have malaria. Maybe. Ah, oh. I'm going to Google malaria now. Crazy if true. Yeah. <laughs> so little spoiler warning to our listeners: we are going to do a couple of episodes now. Uh, hopefully, the next one will be out soon as well. All about the Forgotten Age Deluxe Expansion. So if you've not yet played it, or you're waiting to play it with your playgroup, or you're generally avoiding spoilers about not just the scenarios, but also the new rules and things like that, this is probably not an episode for you. But if you want to hear that discussion, listen on. Yeah, yeah. And uh, more importantly, Wikipedia says the disease is widespread in the tropical and subtropical regions that exist in a broad band around the equator. Much, much of okay. sub-Saharan so Africa, maybe... Asia, and Latin America. Okay, perfect. Yeah, that works. Yeah. That works. Maybe poisoned is just that you've got malaria, and it's just that in the 1920s they've not quite got their head around what it is. Yeah. I think they knew about malaria by the 1920s. I'm sure, sure they did. Because weren't they all... They were all drinking gin and tonic because the tonic has quinine, which helps with malaria. Oh, is that right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't yeah. know that. Wow. Oh, I'll have to, I'll have to get some. It's not on the supplies list, though, is it, for... for GMT? For no, yeah, no, no, it's not. It's not. Just... Sadly. <laughs> okay, sorry. I'll concentrate now. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good to know. My uncle, uh, who is a surgeon, he spent a lot of time in Africa doing surgeon things and can kind of spot a malarial person from 100 paces. He's very good with his malaria. So, yeah, that's where all of my malaria facts come from. Is Is... Surgeon things the official name for what he does. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Okay. Chief of Surgeny Things is I think I think exactly it. Yeah. Good and to he know. fun fact for you, he's repaired a fair few crocodile bites and that's not too problematic, but he says that hippo bites are essentially impossible to do any surgery for. Yeah, aren't hippos famously the most dangerous animal on the planet? They're also the biggest killer in Africa, yeah, that's well, yeah, because if you get between them and water, they just they go like berserk. They're incredibly vicious, is what I I remember hearing. Yeah, yeah, and if they bite you, their teeth are so gigantic that they just kind of pulp you. Oh God, there's no there's no like sort of tearing and lacerating. It's just pure um, sort of d- disintegration, you know, atomization. And yet they've got quite a cute reputation, haven't they? Yeah, the hippo lobby is doing a great job. At, Covering over their violence. Sharks need to get in on that. They're obviously not paying enough into their PR, are they? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Sharks are just smiley. <laughs> yeah. Right, there's no way that we can find a good segue into talking about <laughs> the Forgotten Age from this. But, listener, in this episode, what we want to do is do a fairly basic first sort of look at not the scenarios, but at the new rules in this deluxe and also the two new basic weaknesses. Because both in terms of the rules we've got and in terms of the weaknesses, it's clear that we're forging new ground and 
you and I, Peter, have talked about them a little bit, but I think it's worth recording what we think just very briefly so we can get our head around some of the new considerations for this campaign. In Carcosa, we just had Hidden, I think. I don't think we've got any other new rules. We've got Conviction and Doubt, I suppose, as well. But in this, like already the campaign book feels beefier just because of the three pages of rules. So yeah, we're going to dive in with that. Should we start with weaknesses, though? Yeah, let's. We, we talked about the player cards in our last few episodes. And I guess uh, these aren't technically player cards, but they do. They, they are in your deck. They're, they're player cards until you draw them, anyway. Yeah. I don't know whether people have seen these. There's actually, there's only, although there's a sheaf of weaknesses... In with the player cards. There's only actually two extra basic weaknesses, isn't there? Yeah. So the first of these is Dark Pact, um, which is pact-traded. It reads, campaign mode only, deal two damage to an investigator at your location, forced, when the game ends or you are eliminated, if Dark Pact is still in your hand, remove Dark Pact from your deck, search the collection for the price of failure, and add it to your deck. And it's it's actually a weakness, but it's also an event, and it costs two to play. So already this is horrible. We know Agnes has got an event weakness. Mm-hmm. And it's like adding insult to injury, knowing that when you've drawn it, you also have to, to spend an action and two resources to play it. Yeah. And it, it's, it's this weird thing as well that it doesn't just... You, you don't just draw it and it pops into play and you have to go, oh, I better deal with that haunted or chronophobia at some point. It sits in your hand kind of... The fact that it puts the choice in in the player's hands is actually nasty. <laughs> yeah. And and you can deal the damage to yourself if you want, because you're an investigator at your location, usually. Yeah. So And I mean paying paying two for two damage is uh if this was sneak attack, I'd think that that was fine. And <laughs> <laughs> um, should we look at the price of failure then? Because this has got this weird <laughs> instruction. If if I fail to deal damage, I, yeah. I, I attract like I've got to pay the price of failure. So do you want to read that out, Frank? Yeah, so this is a treachery. It's it's weakness traded, so it's not a it's not an event or anything like that. It's also a pact, and it says Revelation, take two damage and two horror, place one doom on the current agenda. This effect can cause the current agenda to advance. Remove the price of failure from your deck, search the collection for dark pact, and place it in your discard pile. So that's obviously a lot worse, but at least I don't have to spend yeah. the two resources. So it, yeah. it, there's a, there's an interesting synergy between these. So, oh, sorry, an interesting parallel. So Dark Pact costs two resources, an action, and gives me two damage. The price of failure, it's two damage, two horror, and then one doom. Yeah. So they're both two, two, and one that you're losing. But obviously, uh, Dark Pact is a... It's not as not as nasty a thing to have to play <laughs> yeah. than the price of failure. I think losing an action and two resources is slightly nicer than two horror and a doom. <laughs> yeah, 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 usually, yeah. yeah. But, so what I could do is I could ignore the Dark Pact whenever it comes up. Yeah. And then just risk having, you know, the price of failure when that occurs. And that means that every, potentially every other scenario, we're assuming here that you're going to go through your deck every scenario, but every other scenario, you're going to get hit for two damage, two horror, and take a doom. But, you know, the the, the odd-numbered scenarios, you'll just have no basic weakness because you can just ignore it. It's just filling up your hand a little bit, which is sort of interesting in a way. It's whether taking two damage, two horror, and losing a, a whole turn is worth the cost of avoiding 
a weakness in other scenarios, and I'm not sure if it is at this stage. If you know the rhythm of a campaign as well, you can potentially take a view. If you know there's a tricky scenario coming up next and you draw Dark Pact, you might be more inclined to play it. But if you know the next scenario is one that you're particularly good at or your your deck is going to work well in, then mm-hmm. maybe you just say, "Fine, I'll I'll deal with I'll deal with this weakness, the pact, then." Yeah, and not worry about having to play it now and losing that action and those resources and the damage. This this scenario. Yeah. So think about in Carcosa, you've got Echoes into Unspeakable Oath, and in Dunwich, you've got Miskatonic Museum into Essex County Express. In those scenario fours, getting hit by a doom at an unexpected time could be completely crippling. Yeah. So you probably want to spend the time in the previous scenario making sure that you've played your dark pact and and then to, you don't run into that next scenario with price of failure. And naturally, if you get to the last scenario, then dark pact isn't going to do anything at all. Yeah. If you've, yeah, if you've timed it right and got it in your deck for the last scenario. I'm picturing that kind of final turn play you know when people are sort of lined up to delve and resign or someone's gonna play that card that gets you two clues when you draw an encounter card and that's gonna get the last clues and you advance i i can't remember the name of that card but it'll it'll come to me i kind of picture this as a similar thing that you maybe just before that resign action you pay two resources take two damage yourself and then last action resign and you've kind of just snuck through so that there's there's no chance that that damage that you've dealt to yourself or someone else has pushed you over the edge but yeah for some people this could be really crippling like in daisy yeah. this is really pretty nasty absolutely yeah yeah okay well there's there's another should we look at the other weakness mm-hmm. basic mm-hmm. weakness yeah yeah shall i read this one please yeah this is doomed and it's a basic weakness with the curse trait It has campaign mode only, again, and it says, Revelation, take one horror. In your campaign log, under your investigator's earned story assets and weaknesses, record that Doom approaches. If this was already recorded, remove Doom from your deck. Search the collection for Accursed Fate and place it on the bottom of your deck. Okay. Interesting. Well, should we go right through the whole chain and see see what happens? Yeah, let's do it. Right, okay, so Accursed Fate. This is also a weakness not basic, and has the curse trait. Revelation, take two horror. In your campaign log, under your investigator's earned story assets and weaknesses, record that the hour is nigh. If this was already recorded, remove accursed fate from your deck. Search the collection for the bell tolls and place it on the bottom of your deck. And finally, we have the bell tolls, which is a weakness and a curse as well. Revelation, the hour of your demise has arrived. You are killed. I shouldn't laugh. Yeah, well, that's a bit short and sweet, isn't it? It is meant for you. It always has been. Nice. So there's a great progression here between... I hadn't noticed, actually, when I was looking at the cards, but the art is... Someone's obviously drawn a sketch. I don't know whether it's that preposterous, of where they're they're going to die. the, The first Doomed has a picture of... A village with a, a, a church with a spire, and then and a tombstone and a tombstone, yeah. And then the last picture is that view, and then the grave empty but with a drawing line lying beside it. And in between that, in a cursed fate, it looks like they've found a plot of land where they're going to build that town. Like it seems like it's almost like a 
a sketch of I picture this idea and then you've like this is the hill where that church is going to be oh yeah could that's be that's what and it seems like the picture is sort of in the rain that. like we're going to do and then yeah I love in the final image there's still a piece of paper next to the grave yeah so it is that that curse again what I love is that we've got another campaign mode basic weakness but that it doesn't behave exactly in the same way as Dark Pact Dark Pact and Price of Failure are cycling in and out of your deck in on sort of alternating scenarios but but doomed and its follow-up curses aren't doing the same thing it's just a slow and steady progression so you take a horror then the second time you see doomed you take another horror and that's at the point when doom leaves your deck and a cursed fate goes to the bottom of your deck then a cursed fate the same things happens but it's two horror so it's another two horror record something once and then two horror and it's gone and then when you see the bell tolls time's up so again running by if we if we're always going to go through our deck entirely once per scenario but no more than that by scenario five you're dead yeah yeah and i I think that that's quite an interesting place for a character to be you will have an idea of how long left you've got by how many times you've seen it yeah yeah you know how close your doom is you might have got to scenario four but only seen your weakness three times and you know you might you might just manage to get through to the end yeah, but if you get to scenario three and you've seen it, you know, three or more times, then you've got a good idea. You're gonna have to start trying to plan a new deck. Yeah, 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 exactly. Plan a new deck, or plan a new way of approaching scenarios. Like I see this as such uh, an inadvertent kick in the teeth for seeker decks. Like I've been playing Min. I've also been playing Norman, where I'll loop my deck twice, like happily in a scenario. And you know, it depends obviously on which weaknesses I have, but essentially I can work my way through that. Just zoom through, commit cards, draw cards, doesn't matter. And this says you can't do that because if you're looping your deck multiple times, you could see Doom twice in one scenario and then you've already got a cursed fate. You know, you could be dead by scenario two or three if you're not careful. Yeah, yeah. So I love that it's pushing a reconsideration, not just of how you deal with weaknesses, but also maybe how you treat your deck and how how you draw cards, and maybe what comes with that is also how you think about resigning, which we saw anyway with Karen Zobel last cycle, this idea that that Matt wanted rogues to sometimes just disappear and leave and, and not be there to finish a scenario. And this feels like a, a similar-ish thing where it's really encouraging players to go, you know what, I've got 10 cards left in my deck, I've not seen Doomed yet, We've nearly got the scenario wrapped up, so I'm just going to resign, and the rest of you can finish the scenario. Yes, and that, that might be worthwhile. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, I completely agree. And actually, until you certainly for the, the when you draw doomed, it's not particularly onerous because it's only one horror, which is relatively straightforward. I think in terms of uh, basic weaknesses, that's probably just about the mildest you can get, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Unless unless you happen to draw something that whiffs entirely. And then when it's even when it's too horror, that's not terrible unless you're someone who's only got five sanity. You know, it's probably it's yeah. certainly dealable with. And when it's added to your deck, it starts on the bottom as well. So that's that's not too bad. But then the bell tolls. Yeah, the risk is that you draw doomed. It's the sort of like penultimate card. Oh god, deck. yeah, yeah. And, and you've already recorded doom approaches. So then you add a cursed fate, and you've got one card between. <laughs> hitting a cursed fate straight away and writing that the hour is nigh and 
and not or even worse if you're doing it a cursed fate into the bell tolls that would just be horrible like at that point you're desperate for i'm out of here or yeah. i'll see you in hell or, or even you... like quantum flux yeah and just or you try and like fill your deck up again is he yeah yeah the new the new survivor ally as well yeah at all yeah just burn the top card of your deck yeah, I've seen people talking online about an Alyssa Yawatl charisma build where you never see a weakness. Yeah. Because Alyssa's peaking and Yawatl's discarding, which it's a pretty complicated way of avoiding seeing your weakness. But if your weakness was doomed or dark packed, maybe it'd be worth it. Yeah. Just before we move on, I've just got one final thought about dark packed, which is that dark packed in. Eldritch Horror, the board game, was one of my favourite weaknesses because it didn't actually do anything when you got it and it only triggered when, I think, whenever there was a a revelation ability or whatever it was called where you had to test, you had to roll a die and on a one you had to flip the Dark Pact but until then you didn't know what it did. So you could kind of get a Dark Pact and wing it and never see what happened or it could be something that you kill another investigator immediately when it flips (laughs) or you die yourself or you're devoured. But... It was that real, I remember often there'd be some people I play with who'd go, never take a dark pact, it's not worth it. And other people who'd be more willing to roll the die, as it were. Oh, yeah. I love that this has a little bit of a callback to that, which is that you can keep it in hand and decide not to play it if you want to, in the hope that you can, for whatever reason, like ride out the price of failure. Or you can go, oh my goodness, I've got to get rid of this immediately. I've got to give someone two damage, even if it's myself. There's no way I can deal with the price of failure. It would be great if we saw other versions of the price of failure that you'd maybe end up with one at random in your deck or something. That could be really fun. Oh, God. <laughs> Scary thought. <laughs> right. New rules and clarifications in the Forgotten Age. Now, listener, we're not going to go into too much detail of our own experiences of these rules because I think we're going to dedicate more time to talking about that. But we're just going to run through them fairly swiftly and just check in with what our expectations are about these rules. Do you want to start us off with seal? Okay, let's start with seal then. So seal is usually an additional cost. If a card's got the seal keyword, it's an additional cost to play it. Play a card, this is. And then you search the chaos bag for the, the specified token and just place it right on top of the player card you've just played. And it stays on that card until that card is discarded or until the card says otherwise. And at which point it goes back into the bag. And that, that, that's really the headline. The, the, the key thing to remember is if a card has the seal keyword, you can't play it unless you're able to seal the specified token. So... Yeah. If a card says, for instance, seal the Elder Sign, and the Elder Sign is sealed onto a different card, you're not able to play that first card. Yeah, you need that token in the bag, don't you, to be able to go and yeah. fish it out. It's an additional cost. Now, s- some cards, and we've seen one card already like this, have a more descriptive text. Doing a seal is part of the effect of the card. So this happens on the Serpents of Yig, and that's I think that's the only place we've seen it so far. It says... It's a revelation effect for the Serpents of Yig. When they come into play, you search the Chaos Bag for the Elder Sign token and seal it. Because the way seal is uh, worded, it's an additional cost. And it'd be a bit weird if encounter cards or scenario cards have additional costs attached to them. Yeah, you don't normally pay costs to bring encounter cards into play. 
Yeah. And it's worth no, noting normally that the, the specified <laughs> token is not in the chaos bag. The effect fails, but the card still comes into play. So in the case of the Serpent of Yig, even if you've already sealed the Elder Sign, it can still come into play. It just doesn't seal it itself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of scope with seal for it being potentially a really, like, really powerful control technique. But we'll see if it is. Yeah, I think that the key thing is it, it's a good tool for people who know the Chaos Bag very well, who know the probabilities of drawing the particular tokens. And yeah. I think well, the more you get into that headspace, uh, the more effectively you can use seal. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and what the other thing that's quite interesting is that if you're sealing good cards in the bag on onto particular cards, there's an interesting decision point at what point you want to do that. So we've seen Father Matteo's signature asset is his Codex of the Ages. And is it called Codex of the Ages? Just Codex of Ages. Codex of Ages. That seals the Elder Sign. So although it's good, a good card and you can discard it to automatically draw the Elder Sign, you can't draw it naturally at all while it's sealed on, on the card. So judging when to play that is quite an interesting, interesting yeah. free song. We talked about this in our Chthonian Stone episode. One of the, the hard things to gauge with Seal is how much of an effect you're having, because to to be able to gauge it, you'd need people to draw the token, and they're not able to do that because it's sealed. I actually heard on on that other podcast that we sometimes mention, Mythos Busters, they were talking about how you could actually leave one of the tokens in the bag. And just every time you draw it, set it to one side to mark that it's still sealed as a way of noting how many times you actually would draw it were it not sealed, which I thought was exactly encapsulates what we're talking about here, that it's hard to gauge how much of an effect you're having. And there'll be people who say, well, if you seal any token, it's making the tentacle token more likely. And there'll be people who say, well, if you seal any token, it's making Elder Sign more likely. So optimists and pessimists will both have ways of... I think... The better way to look at the bag rather than chances of failure is is almost like a a percentage, like an expected value for the bag. So mm-hmm. what yeah. what percentage of tokens in the bag will mean I pass the test uh, versus fail? So I think that's probably the more illuminating way to, to look at it. And I think that's where you start to see the value of cards like Defines. Yes, because it's so flipping it some, a certain number of tokens ringing from... The Peter's managed to shoehorn in a defiance reference yeah if you're playing the drawn to the flame drinking game <laughs> please finish your drinks now but but yeah no so so that and then cars like grotesque statue and things like that and uh uh olive mcbride yeah they're gonna it's a case it's a case of it, it, it tweaks the, the expected value of the whole bag um, and the better you know the bag the more easily you're able to play that game yeah the next rule we have is alert. This is another fairly straightforward one. This is essentially retaliate, but for evasion. So if you try to evade an enemy with the alert keyword and fail, the enemy gets to perform an attack against you for failing. And just like a retaliate attack, they don't exhaust after the attack or anything like that. They just they just get to ping you. This is kind of scary, isn't it? Yeah, I, I feel it, it really is. In, in a way, uh, evasion has always been almost a safe action, right? Because no matter what else happened, you were always able to evade without triggering any attacks of opportunity. I don't mm, think there's any yeah. cards which say, you know, can't be evaded or, or will attack when you evade. Is there before this? 
So, I mean, your, your, your baseline could always just be, if you've got a massive enemy on you, right, I'll just try and evade it. You know, I've got three shots at it, I'll try and evade it. And if that doesn't work, one of you can come and help me. Yeah. But now, yeah. no, you can't do that. <laughs> with, with an alert enemy, if you if you don't have much chance of evading it, you don't want to take just three pops at it, because you might be dead. Yeah, yeah, absolutely correct. It makes what often uh, um, evasion values are lower than fight values, often, not always. And that also has been a reason why evasion has been a really useful way of getting out of a situation in a pinch. But if you see an enemy that has three fight and three evade, and you're going to get hit, whichever of those you test, suddenly you think, well, maybe I should just be fighting. And obviously it depends investigator by investigator. But I had a situation where I tried to evade something as Ursula, and it was alert and hit me. And that was my last action. I fluffed my turn. And then it hit me again in the enemy phase, and I'd taken four damage and four horror. You could probably work out which enemy it was. So it's such a simple new rule, but it really changes the tenor of evasion. I think if players weren't into evasion already it's, this is not going to bring them into it <laughs> you know it makes it really scary in fact because i i phoned you i think with a with a rules question which is can you pass your turn because <laughs> yeah. I, I, I know yeah, in yeah. other lcgs that you if you've got actions you have to spend them uh, yeah. and usually there's there's edge cases where you don't want to do it where you end up worse off but i think most of the time you could just you know, use your actions to get resources. But we were in a, in a situation, and I think it'll happen a lot more with alert enemies, where you literally don't want to do anything. I've, I mean, I've had that before as Daisy, where I've maybe ended up engaged with an enemy, and you're like, well, I'll try and evade anyway, because if I draw the Elder Sign, it'll give me plus one, it might just be enough, and I'll get a card for it because I've got a tome, or whatever it is. You're like, well, I may as well try the Elder Sign, particularly if the if there's nothing, none of the simple tokens will do anything nasty, like adding Doom or giving me horror. You're like, well, I have a punt on that because I'm not going to forfeit my turn. Whereas this now, you go, actually, maybe I will just forfeit that last action. <laughs> I don't want to get whacked. Yeah, and I'd, I'm interested to see if it how it sticks around after this campaign mm. as well. Obviously, it's in the rules. We haven't seen. We've seen exile and permanence, which were introduced to the Dunwich Legacy. They yeah. they've come back, you know, for the the um, subsequent cycles. So I, I hope alert sticks around because I think it's an interesting wrinkle to the game. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that um, exile and permanent were both actually in the rules reference as well. So oh yes, was... no, I think no permanent definitely was. But there wasn't any permanent cards in the core set. I think Exile was yeah. just in the Dunwich in the Dunwich rules supplement though. I think you're right. Yeah. I've just I think looked. I'm right as well. Yeah. <laughs> you just look so you know I'm right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll take I stand that. corrected. It's not often I get a rules one right, Frank, so I'll take it when I can get it. <laughs> yeah, permanent was in the in the core set, we just didn't have any permanents. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. So that's alert done. I think alert and sealed, they're pretty they're pretty straightforward. In terms of what they're doing, it's another thing to remember, but they're not—they're not complicated. So next, we've got supplies. So this is something very flavorful for the theme of the Forgotten Age, and these are are things you have a pool of different things you can pick from at the beginning of the the cycle that you know your your investigator can take, which may or may not come into play at various points during the campaign, and these are recorded in your campaign log. They don't have any inherent effect, but they they tie in with effects on encounter cards or text in the cam- in the campaign guide, for instance. So we have provisions and medicine, which can each be taken, you know, multiple times if you want to take more than one. 
uh, set of provisions. Then there's a rope, a blanket, a canteen, torches, a compass, a map. Take the map, guys. Binoculars, chalk, and a pendant. They, they do a, a good thing of... There's a little description for each of them in the campaign guide. So basically you have a, a pool of points to pick from. Uh, and that varies depending on how many people you've got playing. And worth noting that you don't get to keep those points as well. That's it. Once they're so spent, it's, they're it's gone. It's not like XP. You just you get given points at a certain point. You spend them, and any leftover are, are lost because you're preparing for an expedition. It's not you're not bringing your energies with you or anything like that. You just you either spend them or you don't. Yeah, and you know it's not even optional to spend them. So if you want to do a hardcore run, take nothing except the pendant. Yeah, useless, but fond memories bring comfort to travellers far from home. Yeah. So I think, did, I, I'm not sure, Matt, was Matt on the record when he talked about these? <laughs> I think he I think he was. It, it, the idea was to make it like one of those choose-your-own-adventure books. Mm. Yeah, you often, you sit down when you create your character for a choose-your-own-adventure book and you get a couple of choices to make that'll just, they'll give you a bit of a direction for playing. You won't necessarily know what all the things you've chosen do, and you might not necessarily know the route you have to take to make them do something. Exactly, yeah. And, and the more you play it in a Choose Your Own Adventure book, the more you learn the paths and the, the things like that, so, so you know which items are unnecessary. I always remember ages ago, I did a, um, there was like a let's play of one of the Way of the Tiger books on a forum. And the Way of the Tiger is, is like an 80s action movie version of Ninjas. Yeah. So then there's a bunch of skills you can pick from at the start. And the guy who was running it said, oh, you know, you can pick this ability that lets you catch arrows being shot at you, or this ability that lets you uh, fire poison darts out of your tongue. Uh, and then there's this ability here, which is you're immune to poison. And just think about that for a second. This is an ability that makes you immune to unfair and instant death. <laughs> but but it's, it's one of those things where you read through it and everything sounds useful. And you're like, oh, yeah. That sounds great. I really want that. And then you read through all of these things, and it's like a map. Who wouldn't? Who would go on a jungle expedition and not take a map? But you yeah. you might have to because <laughs> you might not have enough points to take it. And and the map, the torches, the rope—they're all three point three supply points, which is the most expensive we've seen. Yeah. And even if you're playing solo, you only get ten points. So. Do you invest in all three of those and then you can't take a blanket, a canteen, a compass, binoculars, like all of these other things that sound really useful as yeah, well. except for the pendant. Except for the pendant, yeah. Which is useless. It says it's useless. Yeah, that's literally the first word. In yeah, it's definitely going to be useless. useless. Yeah. <laughs> so supplies, they're, they're, they're fascinating. They add another little dimension that it, it reminds me of Lunacy's Reward, where you can end up with a lot of discussion and you're not even playing the game yet yes or you've just played the game and that bringing the player in around the game rather than just right we've begun turn one here's what we do i really like because I'd, and we won't get too much into our actual experience of playing it because we're going to talk about that in a future episode so before we start with with my blind player group we sit around and we discuss what decks we're going to take and who's going to fill what role who's going to take which unique cards that kind of thing and then we like, you know, send each other our deck lists and stuff like that. So there is that feeling of getting prepared for a journey you're taking together. But this, we picked up what we wanted for the supplies before the first game. And it was like that idea where you're all sitting around the table and you're like, well, maybe you should take this. And oh, no, I don't want to take that. Well, I think we definitely need this. And it was a bit like, you know, trying to pack all the things you need for a holiday together. Yeah. You know, trying to fit everything into everyone's backpacks. 
and I really, really like that feeling. It really helped, um, you know, play into the. And in fact, it's an extra layer on top of building your decks, like you say, Frank. That you know, mm. you might be Ursula who's exploring, but then if Ursula is exploring, does that mean she's going to use, say, the rope and the map more, or the compass? Yeah. Is that those the kind of things she wants? Or if I've got a guardian, does the the guardian maybe want, you know, some binoculars to watch out for things or? Yeah, who knows? And and with replaying, when we learn what these things do, I actually think that's only going to come to the fore more. If you're playing solo, you've got these 10 supply points. You get the most supply points per investigator if you go solo. If you've got those 10 and you know what some of the ramifications of them are, it doesn't make them less interesting. It makes them more interesting to go, well, hang on, I'm probably quite good at doing X, so I don't need the canteen, whatever it is, the chalk, but I'm not very good at climbing, so I'll need the rope. What You, you, you can work out what the things do, and that adds a, another element to... I'm going to do a solo run of the Forgotten Age and I'm going to take the following things with my supply points. Yeah, it's interesting. So the next rule is a really fascinating one. It's probably the one we've seen in action the least. And this is Vengeance X. So some encounter cards now have a vengeance value. And that might be instead of a victory point value or as well as a victory point value. And Vengeance behaves in a pretty similar way to Victory X in that if you defeat an enemy that has vengeance, it goes in the victory display rather than ending up in the discard pile. Any locations with vengeance, at the end of the scenario, if you've cleared all the clues from them, you place them in the victory display, as you would with victory point locations. Treachery cards that have vengeance on them, when they finish their resolution, they go in the victory display as well. And some cards will have both, so you might end up putting a victory and vengeance card in the victory display. So the weird thing about Vengeance, as compared to Victory Points, is that we don't really know what it does. It says Vengeance represents the awareness and animosity of the Father of Serpents, and it's generally a good idea to avoid accruing Vengeance Points whenever possible. That's, that's as much guidance as we get from Matt. Thanks for that, Matt. But even within the first scenario, we've seen some interaction with Vengeance, so, for instance, in the Agents of Yig set, the Brood of Yig is this pretty weenie two-fight, two-evade and three-health enemy that hunts, but it gets plus one fight for each vengeance point in the victory display. Yeah. So if you've been killing off Pit Vipers and Burr Constrictors and putting them in the victory display, the Brood of Yig could quickly become a four-fight three health to evade enemy or a five fight you know it could it could ramp up really quickly yeah i've I've had trouble with those when i've been playing the pit vipers are so small as well yeah they're one health yeah they're so easy like oh i'll I'll just kill it and it's like maybe that's not a great idea (laughs) yeah precisely and then we've also seen the serpent from yoth which has caused i think many people painful moments already it's three fight five health and three evade so it's beefier and it has this massive text box that reads, while there are one or more vengeance points in the victory display, it gains retaliate. When there are two or more, it gains hunter. And then if there are three or more vengeance points in the victory display, it takes one less damage from each attack against it, meaning that potentially that chop, chop, chop with a machete suddenly starts being chop, 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 chop. Yeah. <laughs> which is like nuts. 
Yeah, uh, yeah. And I, there's this weird thing where you've almost got a Pavlovian response when something comes out with that black bull text, the bottom of the text box, and you think, oh, I've got to kill this. Yeah. But, you know, this, this it's not the case with that. And it, it feels like a victory enemy, right? But it's, mm. it's, it's not. Yes, yeah. The other thing that's subtle about Vengeance, and you mentioned things going to the victory display, but... If you've got a, a, a slender encounter deck and say the pit vipers are in there, if you kill them and they go into the victory display, then they're not in the deck anymore. And you're more likely to draw potentially the nastier cards that are in there if you cycle through it. Yes. So another reason not to kill them, right? Yeah. If you can possibly help it. Yeah. Yeah, you could end up just with a deck of kind of pretty nasty treacheries because all the enemies have got vengeance or you've avoided killing them because you don't want to see them anymore. Yeah. I mean, of course, if, if they're in play and you're just evading them, then they don't go back into the deck anyway. Yeah. But it sort of yeah, means so it's that... Same, it's, it's achieved the same effect, hasn't it? It has achieved the same effect. It's it just, in general, the vengeance keyword makes some enemies come out of the deck and then stay out of the deck, which concentrates the rest of it. Mm. Yeah, that will be worth bearing in mind in future if we see any kind of encounter deck synergies that we really want to avoid, because vengeance will will play its part. The other thing is we've seen at least one location that has victory points and vengeance points. Yeah. And I found playing as a seeker that, you know, clearing victory points locations, that's what I do. Yeah. And then suddenly you have this this moment of, oh, actually The rest of your team shouting at you. No, don't do yeah. it, don't do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you've got to have all the questions of do I want to leave a clue here? Because sometimes leaving a clue around is a bad idea. And you've got all of the questions of, well, is it better to, to get all the clues? Because then I can use them for things. And yeah, a nice conundrum to be offered a kind of spiked victory point. So yeah, that's Vengeance. I was making a mistake with Vengeance as well, which you corrected me on. We've seen at the end of scenarios that depending on the vengeance points in the victory display, you need to add that into a tally on your campaign log of Yig's Fury. And I had been assuming that Yig's Fury counted as vengeance points for future scenarios, which is just a kind of a silly comprehension error on my part. But it's worth noting that they are separate things. So vengeance is just counting what's in the victory display at any given time. And Yig's Fury seems to be a kind of cumulative tally of how much vengeance you've got from scenario to scenario. And maybe it will have more of an effect later on, a little bit like um, Chasing the Stranger. If you have X tally marks in under Yig's Fury, do the following. If you have Y tally marks, do this different thing. Well, if if he turns up himself at some point, is Yig a he? I'm not sure. Father of Serpents. If he turns up later, maybe his, his health is going to be equal to his fury. That would be great if you managed it to be like Yig's Fury 1 and this ancient one turns up as a sort of one health. You sneeze on him and he dies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Weenie Yig. Baby Yig. Oh. Yeah. Famous last words. <laughs> so so finally, we have, I guess, even more so than supplies, this is the key theme for the Forgotten Age, which is exploration. Or explore is the word. So the First, this, this is hard to talk about without talking about the scenarios, So, but I'll, I'll try and be general because I appreciate, yeah, as we said, we're going to talk about the scenarios in more depth in the future. How Explore works is it's an ability where you can spend, so far it's an action, but it might be something else in the future. And there's a separate deck, an exploration deck, which is has at least some locations in it, potentially treachery cards as well. 
when you explore, you draw the top card of the exploration deck, and if it's a location which matches the text on the explore ability, it goes into play and you move to it. Mm, free move is quite nice. Well, yeah, it has spent you an action, usually. Yeah, but I, I like that you spend an action to explore and you get to at least move there as well. Yeah, it it, it, it would feel a bit... Yeah, it, would, it wouldn't feel good if you were ex- just exploring just to reveal locations. Mm. And it, it, it emphasises this feel of pushing on into the jungle, doesn't it? That you're yeah. trying to press forward. And actually, sometimes when you press forward into the jungle, you don't know where you're going to end up. They might not mm-hmm. end up where you want to be. Yeah, yeah. So the explore action says what will qualify as a successful location. I think both of the ones we've seen so far, it's just been a connecting location, hasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there's no reason that might not say, you know, connecting and ancient location or something like that. Yeah. And both of the explore decks we've seen so far have been 10 cards, five locations and five treacheries right. so far, which is also interesting that we've explore has been pretty similar in the first two scenarios in terms of the breakdown of the deck and yeah, things like that. So what happens if you explore and you don't draw a connecting location or the correct type of location? Well, you will have either have drawn a treachery, in which case you just mm-hmm. resolve the treachery as, as normal, as if you'd drawn it from the uh, the Mythos deck. That is then discarded, and then that's the end of the action. And that's an unsuccessful yeah. exploration. Yeah. The other thing you might have done is drawn a location which doesn't match the criteria. This could be... At the moment, it will be because it doesn't connect to your current location. Yeah. But, as we've said, that might change in the future if we get other qualifiers on the explore keyword. Uh, And what you do in that case is just set it to one side and draw another card from the exploration deck. So, you will keep going through the exploration deck when you explore until you get to a new location or you get a treachery. treachery. Or, I imagine, potentially, you hit the bottom of the deck. Yeah. And because there's no discard pile for the explore deck, you're just setting aside non-collecting locations connecting locations and either you're going to hit the right thing or hit a treachery or yeah just just whiff i suppose there is a chance that you sit exploring somewhere and there are actually no locations in the deck that connect there and you'll just go through all of them see that there are none and that's the end of your explore yeah yeah i mean that wouldn't normally happen because i think it would potentially be obvious if you're standing somewhere where there's no more connecting locations but mm-hmm. what might happen is there might only be one location that you're looking for and you're not sure where it's connected. So, Yeah. Or you're looking for a particular place. Yeah. And when you put a location into play because you've explored successfully and moved there, you also add clues to it as though you had just flipped it over if it was a two-sided location. That's also useful to note. So I think we'll talk more about the exploration decks in a future episode because it's, it's a really interesting aspect to the Forgotten Age. And I think it's going to be because at least in uh, Untamed Wilds, most of the locations in the exploration deck are in the encounter set, the the base encounter set, not in the scenario encounter set. Mm. So They're in jungle rather than Untamed Wilds. That's right. So they can... Is it jungle or rainforest? Rainforest. Yeah, they've got the keyword jungle. That's right, yeah. So, you know, I I don't think it's a stretch to say they're going to crop back up again in a future scenario. Yes, I think you're completely right. So, you know, the more times you play this this scenario and whatever future scenario they turn up in, you'll start to understand the layout of the jungle, which would help you to an extent. So you know what locations could be connected to your one and what are the easier ones to explore, what's worth victory points, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's nice little bit of um, 
player feeling like investigator, isn't it? Yeah. Where you sit, you're sitting looking at the location connectors, trying to work out what connections might be out there and where the best place to explore from is, which makes you feel a little bit like an explorer as you're uh, trying to go, well, if we set off down this route, we'll probably find something. But if we go over there, oh, no, I don't like the look of that. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, I hope this has been a good listen in terms of getting your head around all of the new rules. I definitely would say if you're trying out Forgotten Age for the first time or you've just tried it out, don't beat yourself up if you miss a rule. This is quite a few new different rules to keep track of, to remember. So, and you know, it's new scenarios, it's new encounter sets. There's a lot of lot to experience, but we've both really enjoyed the first two scenarios. It's been a real blast getting these new rules. So yeah. We'll definitely talk about them more. And I think the general feeling has been from a lot of people that that it's hard. I think you could you could probably more fairly say it's very different from what we've played before. Yes. It's pressuring yeah. your investigators in, in a different way to what we've seen in the past. So even if you're finding it hard and you're like, oh, God, I'm, I'm never going to be able to do this. Don't worry. I think with some practice and, you know, some tweaks to the received knowledge on how best to build decks, then we're, we're, we're going we're gonna to get there. I remember in the past certain scenarios have seen almost insurmountable and, you know, this, now we've got the new cards and we know how they work. You know, they seem far mm. more straightforward today. Yeah. And with knowledge will come power and we'll be able to plot a course through. Yeah, absolutely. So, Peter, we've got another question from one of our patrons. This is from our patron, Alex, and he asks, now that we've seen this tells you how dated we are in asking this. Now that we've seen all five investigators for the next campaign, accounting for the fact that we haven't seen the backs of all of them yet, which oh, no. I am, I'm afraid, <laughs> which one do you most look forward to playing and why? Well, that's a great question, Alex. Thank you. This is a good question. If I'm casting my mind back to before we knew everything, I'd say Matteo, Father Matteo, because yeah. uh, he had such an interesting ability. Now... We know it all about, you know, we know all the signature cards, we know the backs of all the cards. I've got to say the one I'm most excited about playing is Father Matteo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I... <laughs> no surprises there, yeah. I think, I think Matteo and Calvin have been the two... Calvin was a bit of a slow burn. The more I thought about Calvin, he's, a bit, he's like a puzzle, isn't he? Mm, um, yeah. And he plays in such a different way to the other investigators that I was... I was you know, the more I thought about it, the more interested I was in trying him. Yes. I My my takeaway with Calvin is you have early game cards and late game cards. So you might end up with a very odd deck that has sort of a pretty clear division in it. But then also as you get trauma, some of your early game cards become less and less useful. And you end up needing to kind of specialize your deck so that you're just a late game smasher. And that in itself is really interesting. That yeah. A lot of other investigators just have generally good cards all the time. I, I think to an extent he's he's sometimes at the whims of fate a bit. Yeah. He almost relies on having a certain type of either damage or horror on him, you know, mm. to get his stats to the level he needs to be. Because I, I, I tend to find he doesn't have he doesn't have room. Once you put in all the good Calvin cards, there's not as much room to put in the cards, you know, the other good cards. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, if only you had a fifty card deck. Yeah, size, yeah. I'd, I'd love a fifty card deck size. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he doesn't have many things that you know increases action efficiency. Although I'm yeah. to hear myself say that phrase, 
but you know what I mean. So like, yeah, if, no, no, if, no. if you're Daisy, you know, you've got your deductions and your your glyphs in there that make you, you know, increase the rate at which you investigate. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether Calvin's really got that luxury. So he just has to rely on having a high stat. So having, you know, an intellect of five and finding clues the old fashioned way. But yeah. he can do that. And then he can, he can switch back to having a combat of five and then hit people. Yeah. Yeah, and he, what you say about him being at the the whims of the encounter deck is so accurate. If you start, say you're playing The Gathering, and your first draw is just uh, an obscuring fog. Like Calvin hates obscuring fog because it does nothing for him. It just means he's never going to leave his study. And then if your next card is, I don't know, Ancient Evils, again, it's like a complete waste of a card where what you really want is... A rotting remains and a grasping hands early. You want to just get a fail completely on those two tests. Go up to three damage, three horror, and then you've suddenly got like a reasonable stat line. You can start working with it. So it's yeah, interesting well, exactly, how he really yeah. cares about what he wants to get hit by. Yeah, because I, I had one where I was desperately hoping for what's it called? Is it the the? It's the lost encounter card in in Untamed Wilds. Lost in the wild. Lost in. Is it called Lost in the Wild? Lost in something. Lost in space? It's not lost in space. Lost in time and space. Yeah, I, I think it is. And you, you, take a, you take a three difficulty willpower test. Yeah, I'll get it for you. Lost in the wild. Oh, that's not Revelation. Right. Test willpower three. That's it. If you yes. fail, take one horror for each point you fail by and add lost in the wilds to your threat area. You cannot move or explore. I was desperately trying to take some horror. And there was no enemies <laughs> around who were going to give me horror. And that card finally came up. And I took the test and I drew a plus one. So I passed. <laughs> and I was like, oh no, this is the last thing I want. I wanted to draw minus two. <laughs> yeah, Calvin seeing his way through. Yep, yeah, no, I know where I am. <laughs> yeah, he's sort of like... No, no, you're lost, of... Calvin. Please be lost. Yeah. And he really he turns on a dime, doesn't he? Suddenly you can, be in, you can be really powered up and then you don't want to see any of those cards, those encounter cards, because you don't want to die. I really like that duality. So is that who you've been looking forward to the most? Is it Calvin or um I think I think I've been looking forward to Ursula the most, a speedy seeker. It appealed to me and I love that four agility that that sort of appeals to my roguish sensibilities. So I think if I had to choose let's say Ursula. I mean I was very excited Ursula Leo and Finn were the ones we didn't know the backs of, so I was very intrigued by all of them. But uh I've played quite a lot of Rogue recently, so I was looking forward to playing more Seeker. And yeah, I had a lot of fun with Ursula so far. She's very fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm actually the more I see her, the more I kind of, I kind of fancy giving her a try. It, well, yeah. Our experience has been that she really suffers from the willpower. Uh, yeah, if you get the Tooth of Etsley down, yeah, it's not too bad. You're up to four. I think our, I mean, Rex Ursula player was really unlucky. Daisy also, yeah, I, yeah, you can you can be unlucky. That's true. I think, weirdly, I wouldn't mind taking a couple of willpower treacheries on the chin as Ursula if I can then also, if that means I can then also get away from enemies with my better agility. Like, I think as a seeker, probably happier, yeah, with something that helps me with enemies more than worrying about the encounter deck too much. Because you can also take forewarned and cancel encounter cards if you need to, or yeah, they're generally. You can take higher ed as well, and then willpower becomes kind of trivial. Yeah. So, yeah. Cool. Thanks for that question, Alex. If you want to get in touch with us, we're drawn to the flame podcast at gmail.com. 
We're also drawn to the flame on Twitter and on Facebook. And we're also drawn to the flame on Patreon. Shout out to our patrons. Maybe go take a look, see if there's a tier that takes your fancy. And yeah. Peter, how can people get in touch with you? I'm Unitled everywhere. That's U-N-I-T-L-E-D. I'm on the Discord and on the Reddit and Twitter. How about you, Frank? How can people get in touch with you? I'm FB, that's E-P-H underscore B-E-E on Twitter. And I'm also around the place as Zooey Glass or Zozo. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. one of my choose your own adventure books because I've got a relevant one somewhere. I don't know where it is. I've got the Island of the Lizard King somewhere. Which is oh, very nice. Oh that sounds good. Yeah. I don't know where it is though. That's fine. I've also found Island of the Lizard King. Oh, awesome. The cover is amazing, by the way. <laughs> Are we going to loop back around to do that? Could do. Can I, can I read the blurb? Yeah, sure. Kidnapped by a vicious race of lizard men from Fire Island, the young men of Oyster Bay face a grim future of slavery, starvation, and a lingering death. Their master will be the mad and dangerous Lizard King, who holds sway over his land of mutants by the strange powers of black magic and voodoo. Will you risk all in an attempt to save the prisoners? Two dice, a pencil, and an eraser are all you need for this adventure. You decide which route to follow, which dangers to fight, and which mon- which, sorry, which dangers to risk, and which monsters to fight. And there's a picture of Ian Livingston with like a terrible <laughs> moustache on the back. Nice, nice. Ian Livingston, the the Lizard King, right? Yeah, that's right. That's how he's how he prefers to be known. I seem to remember. I love it that your supplies are. A pencil, an eraser, and two dice. That's right, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's all you need, Frank. (laughs) 